It's Wednesday, October 7th, and you're listening to Zero Politics. Hello, my friends. This is Adam speaking, and you're listening to Zero Politics. It's Wednesday, October 7th, as I said before, and there is so much to talk about today. Such big news. Now everyone knows that Hillary Clinton and even Barack Obama was in on it, and the CIA was in on it. Everyone was in on it. They knew that the previous administration, the Obama administration, was going after Trump. And now we have the declassified documents. We have the handwritten notes from Brennan himself admitting that they planned to discredit Trump by creating a false narrative, by, by generating false documents, the whole nine yards, and to present those to the American people to discredit Trump. And they kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And Trump got elected and they didn't expect that. And then they had to keep going with it. And they tried to create an impeachment out of it. And none of it worked. Well, technically, the impeachment was about the call from Ukraine. But still, they, they wanted to impeach him with that. They didn't do it. So they got him. They tried to get him with the Ukrainian call. They didn't get it. Now, I'm not a, a Trump supporter. I don't support Trump. Believe it or not, I didn't vote for him. And I don't support him now, and I won't be voting for him in this next election. But what's interesting to me is the fact that now we have proof that there was a conspiracy going on in the previous administration. And this includes using um, ultimately a Russian group who created a false uh, um, dossier, and that false dossier then was funneled through um, the Clintons to the uh, CIA and FBI, and then they used that as their primary means to get a a FISA warrant and so on and so on. We all know what happened and it ended up being um, three years of litigation over whether or not Trump was colluding with the Russians and it turns out he wasn't. Turns out the whole thing was a scam. And for a long time, even after we knew that there wasn't evidence for it, even after Mueller said there wasn't evidence for it, Democrats still kept saying, no, 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 but, but Mueller said it was still possible that there still was collusion. Well, now it turns out, we know, you cannot turn a blind eye to this. I don't know what Democrats are going to say to defend themselves on this issue at this point. And I'm not anti-Democrat. That's not my point. I'm not one of those who says that all the Democrats are horrible and communist and, or all the Republicans are capitalist and horrible people. No, because I'm not in either party. I don't care. But when I look at this objectively... I wonder what the Democrats are going to say. I mean, at this point, there's not much that can be said to defend because we know now with the declassified documents, the handwritten notes by Brennan, that Hillary Clinton herself created, helped create this plan to discredit Donald Trump by linking him to the Russians and claiming that there was collusion there. And, she pres- and that was presented to Obama, who, quote unquote, signed off on it. He, he knew what was going on. So, and of course, some people could say, well, It's not the president's job to sign off on it. You know, the FBI is independent. They were doing their own investigation and so on. Of course. Yeah, of course. But he could have also stopped it had he really wanted to. He could have blew the whistle on it. He could have said, wait a minute, this isn't cool. You can't be doing this is fraud. And it is. It's fraud. (laughs) It's fraud. But I'm going to talk about that later. It's just a big piece of news today. But I'm going to bury the lead and talk about something else. For the last day, day and a half, maybe even two days, I don't know exactly, Trump 
has been taking, since he came down with COVID-19, a steroid called dexamethasone. And the media on the left, his opponents, have been making a big deal out of this, saying that this treatment can cause psychosis, it can cause manic, uh, not manic, uh, yeah, manic episodes, it can cause uh, mood swings and so on, it can cause a sense of euphoria, a sense that you can, can't be defeated, so you'll do anything. You know, it's like cocaine, basically. And uh, I'm going to play a clip here for you of um, what some of the media had to say. And there was a lot more than this, but I'm not going to spend all day finding all the clips. But here's a few things that were said. Um, and uh, perhaps it was the steroids talking. And uh, I'm not joking, actually. Perhaps it was the steroids talking. Casey Hunt, um, I, I, just, I just wonder, uh, because... I think any doctor that understands the impact of COVID on the mental health of patients, especially while they still have COVID, which we we could suspect likely that the president does still have COVID. Um, he's probably still shedding. It's probably still having an impact on. Let me just interrupt right there for a second before I play the rest of these clips. I don't think he understands what COVID-19 is, Joe Scarborough there. Um, COVID-19 is an illness an ammonia, a pneumonia-like illness that's caused by SARS-CoV-2 virus. President Trump has tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 virus and has the SARS-CoV-2 virus. He went to the hospital for treatment for COVID-19, even though he wasn't showing many symptoms, according to everyone. They could be lying. Yes, I guess they could be lying. But according to everyone, he didn't. He was showing very few minor symptoms at best. So now if they're saying he's, he has no symptoms, he's going to go back home, he doesn't have COVID-19 anymore. COVID-19 is a pneumonia-like illness caused by SARS-CoV-2. You only have COVID-19 when you're actually sick, when you're having the respiratory problems and so on. That's COVID-19. COVID-19 isn't just having the virus in your body. It's having the illness that the virus can cause when the viral dose or the viral load is great enough to start to begin to cause the symptoms of the disease COVID-19, the, uh, the pneumonia-like cardio, cardiovascular, I don't know if it's cardiovascular technically, but that disease. Okay. So, you know, if he doesn't have any symptoms anymore and then he doesn't have COVID-19 anymore. So I don't know if he knows that there's a difference between COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 or not. I don't know. I, I think he probably does, but he's using shorthand and he's being, you know, not very nuanced for someone who calls themselves a journalist. He's really not a journalist. He's a news reader, though, and, and more of an activist than anything else. Chatting, it's probably still having an impact on him. Um, you, you combine that with the drugs that he's taken, with the steroids that he's on. Any, anybody that has been on steroids, strong steroids, uh, for, uh, for health reasons, understand that it does impact the way you think it impacts the way you respond i i don't expect any republican on the hill to be truthful to you on the record about their concerns about the president's stability well i don't think i have to speculate joe the new york the new york times has reported that there are white house officials who are concerned about the president's uh current current mental status because of the drugs that he's taken um, and I, you know, yeah, she doesn't have to, she doesn't have to, um, guess she doesn't have to speculate because the New York times said so. 
the journalists at the New York Times have uh, anonymous sources that they claim have told them that. How many times have we heard this before, that the New York Times has anonymous sources and then it hasn't panned out? All the stuff about Russian collusion, all the stuff about the phone call with uh, the guy in Ukraine, and so many different examples of, well, we have an anonymous insider who's told us. It seems like anytime something pops up, they have an anonymous source inside the White House who's telling them what it's really like. You know, everyone there is saying the opposite, but we know and we don't even have to, have to speculate because the New York Times has a anonymous source, you know, in the White House. So when she says, I don't have to speculate, and then she says an anonymous source through the New York Times has said, she's actually speculating. That is speculation. That's not, she doesn't know the anonymous source. She's not the anonymous source. It's speculation at best when you're relying on a news article written by a journalist who claims to have an anonymous source who won't speak out. Anytime you have an anonymous source who doesn't have the guts to stand up and say, I'm the source and I'm saying this is a problem and I'm going to blow the whistle on it, that's problematic. That It could be true. I'm not saying it's not true. It could be true. Would it surprise me if it were true? No, it wouldn't surprise me at all. wouldn't surprise me one bit if people in the White House are worried about Trump, worried about um, his precautions that he's taking or not taking, worried about the drugs he's on. wouldn't surprise me. What I'm saying is, as a journalist talking on television, you can't say, well, I'm not going to speculate, but I heard from a journalist who wrote a an article at the New York Times that they have an anonymous source who's in the White House, supposedly, you know, that's all speculation. All of that is speculation. So when they tell you they're not speculating and then they go on to speculate, you, you have to start asking, come on, are you, are you being honest with me or is this about politics? Is this really about the truth? Are you really interested in the truth or are you really interested in politics? We have been documenting very carefully, even without the steroids, how this president has governed over the course of the last uh, several years. And, and that has obviously raised many. You know, based on what she just said, based on what she just said, I tend to think it's about the politics, right? That's what I, based on what she just said, hey, you know what? We're saying maybe this medicine is driving him crazy. But you know what? As we've been reporting for the last three years, he is crazy. We already know that four years now. He is crazy. I mean, come on. How is it not about politics when she says that? How is it not about politics? Now, I'm not saying, yes, it's possible she's, she's so convinced in her own mind that Trump is crazy that, you know, in her mind, maybe she's being honest about it. I don't know. But to me, it seems like it's politics. To me, it seems like they're drinking their own Kool-Aid and they're not being critical about their own evaluation of the subject. They don't have any evidence that this drug is driving them crazy, driving him crazy. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Let's keep playing the clips. Let's just keep playing. Considered to be some loose talk about whether we should worry about the president's ability to carry out the duties of the presidency, um, given the COVID treatments he's taking. 
um, whether or not specifically the steroid that he's taking is something that might have cognitive or mood altering um, effects on the president that should. But uh, what we do know is that not only does that medicine, dexamethasone, frequently cause mood sp- swings, even manicness, euphoria, uh, but uh, COVID can also alter your thinking. Note what he says there, that, that last speaker. Note what he says. I'm going to play it again. Not only does that medicine, dexamethasone, frequently cause mood swings. Frequently. It frequently causes mood swings. Okay. Swings, even manicness, euphoria. Frequent moods, uh, mood swings, euphoria, manic episodes. It's frequent. We all know. It's frequent. It's, it happens all the time with dexamethasone. Oh, really? So I decided to do some research because, you know, I actually like to do research. Now, Trump was given dexamethasone for a couple days. Hadn't been on it very long. But what is it exactly? Well, according to WebMD, dexamethasone is a corticosteroid. And now, if you know anything about a corticosteroid, you're probably, half the people listening to this could potentially be on one in their lifetime. It's, quote, used to treat conditions such as arthritis, blood, hormone, immune system disorders, allergic reactions, breathing problems, etc. So that's what it's used to treat. Now, it's also extremely common, safe, and effective. It's been around for a long time. It's known. Uh, and it's safe and effective. Now, here's something else it says on the WebMD website regarding uh, coronavirus. It says, it could reduce deaths and in hospitalized coronavirus patients with severe complications by about a third. Okay, according to a new study. And if you want the footnotes, they're all on my website. I've got footnotes, the article's on my website. So dexamethasone has some side effects, okay? Now, according to what you just heard, you would think the side effects that would be listed on WebMD and all the other websites I looked at, they would be like manic episodes, uh, a sense of euphoria, um, some kind of drug-induced um, a sense of uh, invincibility, that sort of thing. But that's not the case. What are the side effects of dexamethasone? Well, and I quote, stomach upset, headache, dizziness, menstrual changes, trouble sleeping, increased appetite, or weight gain. And then it says if any of these uh, effects persist or worsen, notify your doctor or pharmacist promptly. No mention of euphoria, psychosis, a sense of invincibility, mood swings. In none of the lists that I looked at do they mention any of those. And this doctor, and by the way, that last guy who was just talking, he was a doctor. Talk about being irresponsible, and I have a feeling. He's on MSNBC. Why? Because he's going to say what the opponents of Trump want him to say. That's how you get on the news and that's how they keep you there. If he came out and said, well, as a doctor, I can't, I can't say that those side effects exist because they don't. No, he comes out and says, oh yeah, it happens all the time. Let's play it one more time. Frequently cause mood sp- swings, even does that medicine dexamethasone frequently cause... Frequently, there's the word, frequently. That's the one I was looking for. Well, it turns out it's not frequent enough for WebMD to even mention it as a side effect. Now, it's possible that someone somewhere in the world has experienced one of these side effects after using the drug. Sure, I suppose so. It's also possible that people have misattributed their side effects to the use of a drug, particularly in really extreme cases or when the drug was given at higher doses or whatnot. So either way, these side effects must be considered so uncommon in the medical community that they aren't even listed in any of the online medical sources as a side effect of dexamethasone. 
This is why an article written in Rolling Stone magazine that I'm going to focus on now, titled I Was Prescribed Trump's Steroid, It Made Me Feel Invincible, is entirely irresponsible. Entirely irresponsible. The article recounts how the author, quote, Nashville songwriter Andrew Leahy, was given dexamethasone to prepare for major brain surgery, and how, quote, it made him feel great, but he also lost his grip on reality. Leahy writes, Hoping to restore some of that hearing before I underwent brain surgery, my doctors prescribed me a daily dose of dexamethasone. He doesn't mention how long he was on it, what the dose was. The same steroid that's now being administered to President Trump as part of his kitchen sink treatment of COVID-19. And just like Trump, notice what he said there, it made me feel invincible. Note what he said there. And just like Trump, it made me feel invincible. See, the author assumes that Trump is experiencing these symptoms. He just assumes it. And because he assumes that Trump is experiencing these symptoms, he refuses to accept the intellectual and moral responsibility of proving that that's the case. He expects you, the reader, to simply accept it as a foregone conclusion, a fact that doesn't require any evidence whatsoever to conclude. While it is logically possible that Trump is experiencing these symptoms, sure, it's not a foregone conclusion, nor can it be considered a premise for an argument that Trump is unfit to be president due to his medication. Which, by the way, is what's coming next. 25th Amendment, we need to unseat the president, kick him out because he's unfit for office because of medical or mental issues, right? But that conclusion must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt with solid evidence, not partisan hyperbole. So this, to me, is a perfect example of non-critical thinking. See, a critical thinker, and by the way, that includes you if you're someone who just has accepted this premise already out of hand, and you, you think because you saw some clips on the news that Trump is acting erratically. I'll get to that in a minute. And so, therefore, it must be due to this um, medication. Forget what the dose is. Forget how long he's been taking it. All of those things come into account. But the big thing they're forgetting is the fact that it's never mentioned on any website that this is actually a side effect of dexamethasone. So, throw all that out the window. We're just going to assume that he's sick. And if you're one of those who's assuming that, then I'm going to suggest that you're probably, probably assuming that because you already have the motive and the prior bias of wanting to see the president, you know, leave office. And I don't necessarily blame you for that. That's not my point. My point isn't to just prove that he isn't, my point isn't to prove that he should stay in office or anything like that. My point is just to call out your reasoning and tell you why you need to think more critically. See, a critical thinker almost always asks the question, oh yeah? Prove it. Prove it. A critical thinker always questions the premises of an argument, especially when they're assumed, as in this case, without any defense. And here the implied argument is, Trump has gone crazy due to his medication and must be removed from office using the 25th Amendment. This argument, though, is based on the unproven premise that Trump's medication causes psychosis, but such an argument is not yet proven. And simply pointing out a single inconclusive anecdotal story from someone who reported experiencing invincibility does not override the fact that medical researchers do not consider psychosis or a sense of invincibility to even be a side effect of dexamethasone. The only people who are assuming that is one anecdotal person who experienced that and a doctor on MSNBC and then a bunch of so-called journalists who are really just professional newsreaders because they don't really do journalism anymore. So even if you're feeling really accommodating, really accommodating in, with regard to this argument, you could say, okay, there's, there's a subtle implied 
defense of the premise. It goes something like this. Trump said he felt better than he has in 20 years. Did you hear that on the news? People said, oh, Trump said he feels better than he has in 20 years. Therefore, he's experiencing a drug-induced sense of invincibility. But uh, if you know anything about Trump, and I think we all do, Trump talks this way all the time. All the time. He's from Queens, New York, for goodness sake. They're known to over-exaggerate everything. Literally everything. Hey, you try the new black papadelli over at uh, Trattoria Le Contro. It's the best in New York. I'm telling you, it's the best. I'd kill my own f***ing mother for some of that. You know, that's the kind of stuff that they say on a regular basis. Trump says this stuff all the time. Trump has always been an over-the-top salesman. He fills most of his sentences, he speaks, like every sentence is full of hyperbolic language. And in many cases, the news media have criticized him for it repeatedly. They know he talks this way. And rightly so that they've criticized him for it. It's not becoming of the president. It's, it's not... Um, it, it, it allows for people to call you out for lying too much, you know, because he over-exaggerates things and people say, oh, he's a liar. Well, it's just his style. But it's a really stupid style for someone who's trying to be the president, who really wants to make a good show. I think, you know, Trump, Trump would have, he's won over a lot of people, sure, in many ways, more than expected. I expected him when he first became president to lose a ton of people, to destroy his party. I thought it was going to be an absolute shit show. And, you know, it hasn't been entirely that, you know, he, in some ways it's been, it's been a disaster in some ways, but in other ways, he's won over a lot of supporters. Some, some polls have him doubling his African-American support. I think he probably could have done even better had he acted more presidential. So you know the type of person he is. You know he's always felt pretty invincible. He's always felt he over-exaggerates and he uses hyperbolic language. This is no surprise. Him saying, I feel better than I did 20 years ago. He's probably just lying because he wants everyone to, you know, get a sense that he feels okay. And when I say lying, a lot of people would say, no, it's not a lie. He's just over-exaggerating or he's just, or maybe even it's true. It could be true. Who knows? But um, I know a lot of his supporters would say, no, he's not lying. It's a figure of speech or whatever. You're taking him too seriously. And that could be the case, whatever. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. My point is that this is the way he is. And we all know that. So anyways, Trump has always been over the top. And now all of a sudden they're acting like that's news. No, really, the news is just how far Trump's enemies and the news media will go to criticize Trump and convince their followers that he's an existential threat to the U.S. and must be removed from office post-haste. The argument that Trump is experiencing a drug-induced sense of invincibility isn't justified by the science or the evidence at this point. Maybe it could be proved later. But at this point, no. And if at some point there's evidence to the contrary, I would be the first one to say otherwise because I have no skin in the game. I don't care. Until then, the news media ought to tread carefully while attempting to cash in on the last bit of credibility they have left, if they do, in fact, have any left. (sighs) All right, let's move on to the return of the Trump is a dictator argument. It's been a while since I've heard it. Well, I still hear it periodically, but it comes and goes. It rises and falls in popularity. And right now... For whatever reason, when he decided to wave to his supporters and then uh, walk up the stairs into the, into the White House and stand there and take off his mask and wave to his supporters again and um, then come out a few minutes later and salute the uh, helicopter as it, as it uh, flew away, 
For some reason, even though Trump has done this stuff many times before, and other presidents have done it, even more so in fact, now all of a sudden this is him acting like a dictator, acting like Hitler or Stalin or one of the old Russian czars, as one person put it. And I don't think they actually know what the old Russian czars were like, but um, I think she was just throwing out a scary-sounding name on the news, you know, to get get the attention of the the her audience out there to get them to vote. Damn it, vote! But yeah, the critics, uh, you know, they're going at it. I'm gonna play a little clip here for you. Come on, play. Oh. Uh, there we go. Sort of sense of the landscape. Where are we now? And I said, uh, I wake up in the mornings often feeling like we're in the grips of a madman. <laughs> I hold rallies and I tell you to ignore masks and I rip mine off as I vanquish the virus because I am a leader. Fear not, COVID. What a bunch of bullshit. These are news Going people, back by to the, the White way. House. What, what not we're comedians. seeing here really looks like. It's like something out of North Korea. The deer leader comes out, right, with the, with, with the, the, the magnificent helicopter entrance and, and up the stairs and, and off goes the mask as he pauses, you know, and preens for the, for the shots. I don't know what kind of statement he's trying to make by showing off that he could take off his mask. Uh, give, uh, gives a thumbs up over there, but it's uh, clearly all about the photo op the president wants to show. He's back in action. Um, uh, Sanjay, I, I, I believe you're here as well, right, uh, Sanjay? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Yep. So, Sanjay, I would like to say that nothing surprises me at this point, um, but that was awful. <laughs> just a, he's a dictator. It was just, it was just reckless, uh, you know, and it just it's, it's heartbreaking. And we haven't heard one iota of humility, sorrow, or even the faintest hint that he now understands what millions of Americans do and that he will work to protect them. You heard none of that. This is a, a Mussolini moment. Uh, Donald Trump, who looks like he has makeup on, which means somebody had to get close enough to make up his face with his favorite orange patina. He <laughs> I don't know if he does. If he is... Um, you know, a member of the... He's Mussolini now. Czar family. There's the Russian Just czar propaganda. coming. That's all it is. I know this sound to it. I'm not going to play it for you. Why should I? How much bull... Of course it's propaganda. What the f*** do you think the government is? All governments everywhere are full of propaganda. Of course it's propaganda. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They're calling him Mussolini. They're comparing him to dictators. They're saying that he's like the old Russian czars. Why? If you watch the video, all he did was walk up to his house. When they were saying this, they're showing video of him. You have to remember, Trump lives at home in the White House. That's his house. If you go to the hospital for COVID-19 and then you get well, you go back home. <laughs> you go back home. They were criticizing him for going back to the White House. There's people in the White House. He's going to get people sick. Well, that's his house. That's where he lives. So that's their problem. If there's people at the White House, they need to leave, you know? And I don't know if there is or isn't. I don't know if he's close to them. I don't know what's going on. And I'm not defending Trump in the sense that I think he's being safe or responsible because I have no idea if he is or not, and neither do they. Really, they don't. But seeing him outside of the White House, waving to his supporters and then saluting the copter as it takes off, 
that's just par for the course. Presidents have done that hundreds of times. Presidents have done motorcades like he did when he was um, outside of Walter Reed and he drove by his supporters and he waved at them. He wanted to, you know, do something nice for his supporters. It's not, at some point you have to recognize that the hyperbole is out of control because his critics, they're calling it a Mussolini moment. But we, what, when you watch what he did, I mean, what is, that's like saying that he's like Mussolini because he drives in a car and Mussolini drove in cars. You know, the left-leaning news media, they may have already lost all their credibility here at this point. Throwing out names like Mussolini and Kim Jong-il and Hitler and, you know, this is all per their daily talking points memos sent out by the DNC and others. The, the Republicans do the same exact thing. So this was all in order to convince the viewers that Trump must be a dictator. He just must be because we keep saying it over and over again. It's crowd think. It's just simple psychology. You repeat it enough times and it becomes, it, it seeps into people's subconscious. The argument, by the way, that they're making is basically just this. Hitler drove around in an automobile and waved at his supporters. Trump drove around in an automobile and waved at his supporters. Therefore, Trump is Hitler. I mean, that's basically their argument. They're comparing him to dictators because he drove around in an automobile and waved at his supporters and then went outside on his patio outside the White House and waved at his supporters. It's ridiculous. But what's more ridiculous than what they said is how much time they spend saying it. How much time on the airwaves was spent repeating this incessantly and how ridiculous these arguments are in terms of the time spent covering them. And I'm not kidding. I mean, you heard it. She said it's his Mussolini mo moment, and I could have kept playing that, but I stopped it. Let's, let's play some more of it. In your life. It's such a distressing moment to say, I feel better than I have in 20 years. That he's saying this is... <laughs> they have a real problem with him saying that he felt better than he had in 20 years. I mean, they really... Trump is constantly... Everything Trump talks about is always the perfect, it's the best, it's better than it's ever been. You know, it's rarely is it completely true. I mean, he could say we had the best economy ever. Well, by some metrics, yeah, perhaps by others, no. I mean, I would argue that in terms of debt and inflation and in terms of uh, the power of money, um, in terms of uh, our, our monetary system in general, our economy still is horrible, you know? Um, and, uh, and I even know a lot of Republicans who would agree with me on that. So sometimes what he says is true, that some things like unemployment um, among African-Americans was the best it's ever been before covid same with Hispanics, Asians, really across all, all um, criteria and different groups. But that doesn't mean everything else that he says is, is always true, you know, but he likes to over-exaggerate and sometimes that gets him in trouble. But when he says, I feel the best I've ever been in 20 years, I'm surprised he didn't say, I feel the best I've ever felt in my life, ever. <laughs> you know, that's just the way Trump is. Now, if he said that, maybe I would think, what the, what is he talking about? Best he's ever felt in his life? But even he didn't go that far. Even he said only in the last 20 years. Disrespectful. The president says it's no big deal. Uh, I mean, it's outrageous. It is insulting uh, to the people who have lost loved ones. It is insulting to every American who wears a mask. I mean, it's disgraceful, Wolf. It's absurd. Uh, 
At that point, I think the lady was talking about the mask, him taking off the mask. And, um, you know, in one way, I agree with her there um, because he took off the mask and then he went into his house. Um, and uh, I don't know what he did or who he was around, but it looked like there were other people around. So he probably should have had the mask on, I think. Um, if nothing else, to be an example, perhaps, you know. But no Americans are wearing masks in their home with their families. So, I mean, on the, on the other hand, it's like, well, he's just doing what every other American does. When they get home, they take their mask off. Americans aren't wearing their masks in their home with their families. Now, obviously, for Trump in the White House, he both lives there and works there. So, there are other people around. I think he should have kept the mask on. Um, I don't know. I think maybe maybe he took it off because... You know, he was signaling, maybe he was just saying, maybe he was thinking, I'm, I don't want, uh, I just want to go inside, so I'm going to take my mask off, and when I'm inside, I take my mask off. Um, but it is possible he was signaling, okay, you know, I beat it, I beat the coronavirus, um, I'm going to take the mask off. I don't know exactly what it was, but um, what I do know is that the comparison of him to a dictator is uh, hyperbole in the extreme. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if comparing Hitler to Trump because he drives around in a vehicle waving his supporters is logical, then comparing the Pope to Trump because the Pope drives around in a vehicle and waves to his supporters, you know, we could do that too. So the Trump, Trump, so the Trump, Trump is the Pope, I guess. Now the news media analysis, in my opinion, has reached really an all-time low. At least during the Russia investigation, they had interesting conspiracy theories. It, it was interesting, and, and for a long time, I thought, maybe there's something there. You know, I was willing to listen, but the evidence wasn't really forthcoming. Now their conspiracy theories just make no sense whatsoever. You know, like recently when they said, well, he's just lying, he doesn't have COVID. Yeah, I'm sure the entire White House administration and the doctors are all lying about Trump having COVID. That sounds legit. But what they're saying now is that, you know, Trump stood outside the White House and waved for the cameras, and that was the last bit of proof we needed to say that we are living in a nightmare, quote-unquote. You heard him say that on the, the audio. We're living in a nightmare where Trump sees himself as an old Russian czar. And that just proved it because he stood outside the White House and waved. It doesn't make any sense. It's a non-sequitur. CNN and MSNBC are better off focusing on their steroid accusations and the suggestion that Trump is ignoring COVID-19 safety than they are comparing Trump to a dictator who killed tens of millions of people. They're not going to get anywhere with that one. So they ought to give it a rest. Now, let me make it clear, by the way, that the Republicans similarly criticized Obama as a secret Marxist and so on. They didn't say he was a dictator, but they did call him a Marxist. And while he may be sympathetic to socialism, maybe even Marxism, I don't know, such an argument is difficult to prove, given what he did and said during his presidency, and I made that argument at the time. I defended Obama against those accusations. I agree with most social Democrats who say that Obama was essentially a corporatist Democrat. However, I have to admit that the Republicans didn't go nearly as far as the left-leaning media and Democrats have gone in their criticism of Trump. They've just outdone themselves. It's reached a fever pitch and a level of irrationality that I have honestly never experienced before, not even close. These sorts of arguments comparing U.S. presidents to dictators simply because they wave to their supporters or take advantage of photo ops are irrational and illogical. 
They quite literally make no sense, and in philosophy, we call that a non sequitur, which in Latin means it does not follow. In other words, the conclusion they're attempting to express does not follow logically from the premises or the facts. And that's the reason why I started this podcast. If you want to argue that Trump is a dictator, you need to focus on his policy. What policies has he put in place that are dictatorial in nature? Now think for a moment. What policies do dictators put in place that make them dictators? Because there are policies that are not dictatorial in nature, right? And there are some that are. For example, the Bill of Rights is not dictatorial in nature. Just the opposite, in fact. The Bill of Rights protects human rights against dictatorial governments. So what policies are, in fact, dictatorial? Well, dictatorial powers are characterized by being absolute in nature and oppressive. In other words, Trump would have to put forward a policy that would make him the absolute or singular ruler of the United States. That would be a dictatorship. Now, that's impossible to pull off given America's governmental structure. No matter what Trump attempts to put in place in terms of policy, it must rely on the acceptance of Congress and or the courts. Even executive orders are subject to the Supreme Court's approval. The Supreme Court is authorized to find that an executive order is unconstitutional, so they can do that, or that it violates some other law passed by previous congressional and presidential approval and is thus non-binding. They're authorized to do that. Trump, by the very nature of the governmental structure of the United States, cannot possibly act dictatorially. It's literally impossible. And even if he tried to act dictatorially, it wouldn't take long for the rest of the government to remove him. Say, sorry, you're out of here. So has Trump ever attempted to pass a law making him the singular ruler of the United States? We all know the answer to that. It's no. Not even close. Thus, it logically follows that Trump is not a dictator, nor is he attempting to become a dictator. Now, he may sometimes do the same things dictators do. For example, brush their teeth, take a shower, drive around waving at supporters, hold a rally, make fun of people, stand up in front of the White House, waving. But none of those things make him a dictator. However, the news media knows that by repeatedly comparing him to dictators, they can increase the outright hatred their viewers have for Trump and hopefully gain support in their quest to beat him at the polls. And if they do beat him at the polls, they will have successfully replaced one corrupt politician with another even more corrupt politician with an even longer history of being a corporatist sellout who's become a multimillionaire while working in Congress and whose family, by the way, has amassed a fortune during that same time. Congratulations, Democrats. So meanwhile, the people are controlled and manipulated and logic and rational thinking die the death of a thousand cuts. No matter which political party you belong to, you won't save America at the polls. The war is fought in the minds of the people. And it's a war between manipulative lies and logical arguments. They're stoking fears about black and brown Americans lying about how minorities will destroy the suburbs. And they're pinning it all... What? What was Michelle Obama talking about when she said that they're saying black people, African Americans, will destroy the suburbs? Whoever said that? This is an amazing example of how she has accepted the, and again, it's the same thing I was just talking about before. She's accepted the idea in her mind that anytime, anytime you're opposed to um, the Democrats, 
plans for what to do with the suburbs and how to zone the suburbs and the big changes they want to make to the suburbs, that that equates to wanting to keep African-Americans out of the suburbs. But that's just not true. And no one says that. So, but she, she believes that so wholeheartedly and the people she, and she believes that the people she's talking to accept that so much so that she doesn't even have to defend that idea. She doesn't have to defend it. She can just say it and everyone accepts it as true. And she outright says, most people will say the Republicans are trying to oppose, um, oppose a policy that will that would make the suburbs more diverse. Let's put it that way. Most of the time they would say something like that. The Republicans are opposed to policy that will make the suburbs more diverse, which by the way, isn't true, but that's how they would say it. And the assumption there then is, okay, then that means they want to keep African-Americans and perhaps other minorities out of the suburbs. And that's racist. And she just says, they believe that black people destroy the suburbs. None of that is true. None of that is true. We have the highest black homeownership in the suburbs right now than we've ever had before. In American history. And Trump has only helped that. He's, he hasn't done any, none of his policies have hurt that in any way because we have the lowest black unemployment. We have the lowest taxes for people who, you know, don't make a lot of money. It, well, zero for people who don't make a lot of money. They don't pay any federal taxes. So at this point, um, I mean, they pay into social security and stuff like that. But apart from that, there's no extra taxation. So my point is that at this point, African-Americans are flooding the suburbs, which no Republican is against. No one's arguing against that. No one said, we got to stop the African-Americans from flooding the suburbs. No, in fact, Trump's policy is in large part the reason why so many African-Americans are flooding the suburbs. Yes, the economy started doing better under Obama, that's true, but it really shot up under Trump and more African-Americans uh, had jobs and were working and were getting paid more money. Wages were rising. So, I don't know. This idea that Trump is somehow... No one's talking about, oh no, the, keep the African-Americans out of the suburbs. No one's saying that. No one's... I don't know. Maybe they say that at some Ku Klux Klan rally in someone's basement in southern Georgia somewhere. But no one in mainstream America, in the Republican Party, much less the Democrat Party, are saying anything like that. And there, uh, the policies that Republicans oppose, that Biden has talked about, and that others have, um, I can't even remember the name of the policy now, but it was passed, uh, I believe, through an executive order originally, actually. Really, they were opposed to those policies for reasons of um, that they didn't feel it was proper for, um, you know, right next to your house, they could build a, a massive skyscraper or something like that. They wanted to keep the suburbs the suburbs. They didn't want to just um, create a bunch of incentives and a bunch of rezoning and stuff like that so that they could just turn the suburbs into little cities and build massive, um, you know, 20 story apartment buildings right next to little homes and so on. That's what I've heard over and over again as the primary argument against the, um, the, the suburb plans and policies that Biden has in mind. And I can't remember what they're called at this point. There's probably a bunch of people saying, oh, Adam, you, you don't know what it's called. It's called this. I know, I know, but I can't remember what it's called. But it's not, this whole racism shtick is out of hand. I mean, it's just gotten to the point where it's ridiculous. And she just says it like, nobody believes this anymore. I mean, Trump has doubled his support among African-Americans. He's condemned 
white supremacy more than any other president because he keeps getting asked the question. And even though he screwed it up at the debate big time, where he botched the whole thing, and, you know, they asked him at the debate to condemn white supremacy, and he asked, well, what do you call it? And uh, I talked about this on my introduction to this show, but he said, okay, what do you want me to call it? Like, what name do you want me to use? Because they were saying... Um, condemn white supremacy militia groups and the Proud Boys. And he's like, okay, fine, uh, the Proud Boys. He latched onto that term and said, stand back and stand aside when he meant to say stand down and let the cops deal with Antifa. Because in Trump's mind, he was thinking in terms of the debate, the opposition to these um, uh, militia groups and the Proud Boys, who are not white supremacists, by the way, two completely different things. Condemning white supremacy is something Trump has literally done dozens of times. You can go on YouTube and watch his videos where he said, I disavow white supremacy. I don't want white supremacists to vote for me. I disavow David Duke. I disavow any hate groups. He said they should be condemned completely, referring to, in fact, it's not even just referring to. He said it in that sentence. He said, I'm not talking about the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis. They should be condemned completely. And I quote, he, because people have pressured him so much on this issue, He's condemned white supremacy more than any other history or more than any other president in history. And that's a fact. No other president has had to condemn white supremacy more than him. And I don't know what he was thinking at the debate. I mean, again, I'm not a supporter of Trump. I'm not going to try and defend what he did at the debate because he totally screwed the pooch. I mean, he just, I don't know what he was thinking. You know, sometimes he often doesn't do what's best for um you know, the longevity of his presidency. <laughs> because when they asked him that, he should have said, of course I condemn white supremacy. I defend hate in all its forms and so on and so forth. But he didn't. Instead, he said, what do you want me to call him? Okay, Proud Boys, fine. Stand back and stand down, you know. It was ridiculous. That whole debate was horrible. But the, the, this shtick, this whole thing with the President Trump being a racist needs to stop at some point. No one believes it anymore except for the really, the really the far left media, they're the only ones who are repeating this. And then people on, you know, like far left people who just really hate Trump, even moderate Democrats are like, yeah, he's not really a racist. Um, and I don't know, like no libertarians I know believe that, believe that he's a racist. Most of the black people I follow don't believe he's a racist either. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a mix because I follow a lot of people like on Twitter and stuff. But anyone who's not a journalist and, uh, you know, not like involved in some uh, social Democrat organization or something, they don't believe he's a racist. And there's a lot of, he's like doubled his support among African-Americans. So I think the gig is up or is it the jig is up? I don't know. What's been an overwhelmingly peaceful movement for racial solidarity? What the president is doing. By the way, what she was saying there was that. The protests for Black Lives Matter have been peaceful, overwhelmingly peaceful. And really, to a large degree, that's true. There's been a lot of peaceful protests. There have been riots almost every night for like over 100 days straight, like 130 days. Somewhere in the country, any night, there's a riot going on. And I'm talking about they're breaking windows, burning down buildings. They're hurting people. um, They're destroying property. I'm not saying that those are Black Lives Matter protesters because in many cases, in most cases, I would say those aren't the BLM protesters. In fact, I think the BLM protesters have really died down. They're not going out anymore because it's now the Antifa, Black Bloc, Anarchists, 
anarcho-communists, anarcho-syndicalists, whatever they want to call themselves, they're the ones who are going out there and uh, burning down buildings at night, hurting people, um, killing people. And uh, they've killed over 33 police officers and security people and others. And they've injured a thousand, uh, uh, almost a thousand police last I heard, but that was like two months ago. So, I mean, it's gotten to the point now where, yes, the majority of the protests were peaceful, at least at first. But at some point you have to say, if you have a glass of water and you just put a tiny bit of poison in it, it can kill you, even though most of the majority of the water is non-lethal, you know? Well, it's mostly non-lethal, but it'll still kill you. And that's what we're experiencing with these protests. I would love to see the protests be able to continue without the violence and without the, you know, um, and it's only helping Trump get reelected. So, you know, again, no one, when the people hear this, there's going to be a lot of people on the left or on the right who are like, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem peaceful to me, you know, because it's not even though she's technically right that the majority of the protests are peaceful. And in particular, the Black Lives Matter protests, particularly the ones that take place during the day, are peaceful. It's the after-hours stuff that's really bad. And so, and it's mostly, by the way, white kids from the suburbs who aren't even black, and they're using it as cover to promote uh, anarchism of some kind, mostly anarcho-communism. They call it Antifa, but it's really just anarcho-communism. Is once again patently false. It's morally wrong. And yes, it is racist. I feel like I should be able to like Michelle Obama. I feel like I should be able to say, because previously I did. I didn't have a problem with her. And I kind of thought, well, she's a respectable woman. She's she's a good first lady. She's She seems classy and nice and, you know... But lately, with Trump being president, they've become the whole, just you know, the Obamas and, and the Democrats in general have become much more antagonistic. And I've been noticing that Michelle Obama has been, able, been more willing to come out and say things that during uh, Barack's presidency, Barack was very much opposed to calling Republicans racist and using that, that uh, bully pulpit as the president to hit the Republicans with the stick of racism all the time or paint them with the brush of racism. He was, he was often opposed to doing that, even when many people who supported him would utilize that. And this has been happening for a long time. Of course, we know that historically it was the Democrats who initiated slavery, who defended in the, in the Civil War, who fought for um, Jim Crow laws and subjugation of black people in the South and so on. It was always the Democrat Party who fought against the Republicans who were in, who, you know, formulated their party to free the slaves, fought the Civil War, freed the slaves, fought against Jim Crow laws, all, all of that. And then at some point there was this switch, and I won't get into the details, but Democrats started filing over into the, I'm sorry, um, African Americans started going filing in over in the Democratic Party. And that was a planned thing. It cost the Democrats a lot of money and they had to lie a lot, but they got the support of Democrats. And since then, I won't get into all the details, but since then, things have not changed a whole lot, according to the Democrats since the 70s. I mean, things are still supposedly horrible, and the Republicans are the, the ones who are to blame, and they're racist. 
And by the way, the reason I get into some of that history is because there are going to be Europeans listening to this podcast. I have friends who will listen to this and I need to say some things that are kind of laying the groundwork, historical facts and observations. So anyways, the Democrats spent millions of dollars. They bought off um, leaders in the uh, African-American community to become Democrats who were previously Republicans. MLK was a Republican. He was always a Republican, but Jesse Jackson was a Republican initially. And then um, he switched to the Democrat Party. Long story short, the... uh, the Republicans have been painted with this brush of racism for the last 30, 40 years. And to be honest with you, it really hasn't worked. In fact, now in the last 10 years, it's, it's failed miserably. And that's why you have Trump doubling his support among African-Americans, many African-Americans becoming Republicans. And it just doesn't bode well for the future of the Democrat Party. And I just kind of wonder how many people listening to Michelle Obama um, accuse the Republicans and, and Trump for, as being racist, how many of them actually believe that? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I don't think that it's true myself, and I just say that objectively. I'm not a Republican. I, I could care less if the Republicans win or if the Democrats win, because in the end, I agree with Republicans on economics, and I agree with Democrats on social issues. So, Depending on, although the Democrats are starting to lose me on some of their social issues. Lately, they've been more pro-war and they've been more pro uh, big tech companies um, invading people's privacy. Um, and uh, I have a feeling that a lot more um, more Democrats are in favor of like FBI and CIA surveillance of Americans, um, buying uh, data on Americans from tech companies and so on. Some of those things that are initially or historically Republicans had been in favor of. And we've, I've seen a little bit of a switch that way. There have been some Republicans that have been, you know, like Rand Paul and others who have been more about personal civil liberties, whereas the Democrats used to be a, a lot more uh, proponents of, of that. But now I'm seeing that change too, so I don't know what's going to happen there. But historically, I'd been, in terms of social issues, the Democrats really respected individual civil liberties a lot. And uh, the Republicans, in terms of economics, um, respected freedom in terms of economics. And I personally tend to favor freedom across the board in all cases. So individual liberty in both economics and individual liberty in terms of social issues. So, But this show isn't about my personal opinions on politics, but that gives you a little bit of background as to the fact that I really don't I don't think one party is necessarily better than the other because they both have, um, they both propose things that I agree with sometimes, you know what I mean? So it doesn't matter to me which side wins, really. So I just have to be honest and call it as I see it across the board on every issue. And with regard to the issue of racism, I don't see the Republicans being racist. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't really see Democrats being racist either. What I see them both having are different policies for how they feel we can create more equality under the law. And I see people on the left advocating more for more than just equality, equal treatment under the law, and more for equal outcomes, which can get problematic because then a lot of times that has to call on the use of violence or the threat of violence in order to, in order to impose 
some sort of restrictions on one group in order to promote the equal outcomes of the other group. And anytime you start talking about groups and collectives, I have, I have problems with that. I'm all about individuals, treating all humans as individuals and um, uh, promoting individual liberty and equal treatment for everyone as individuals. But uh, that's enough of that. I've talked too much about this issue. I didn't even know I was going to talk that long about uh, Michelle Obama. But this little segment about Michelle Obama, I just couldn't help but, but mention the fact that she just straight up calls Trump and, and the Republicans racists without any defense, without feeling like she needs to defend that at all. She just says it's racism. They're racist and they want to keep black people out of the suburbs, which is ridiculous. <sighs> All right, time to move on to something else here. Um, I want to talk just for a moment because I've already, I talked too long about that uh, in that last segment about uh, some of the way that the left pitches arguments against Trump. And I'm really nailing the left today because um, I, I just can't, I can't get over what has happened, but don't worry, I'm going to get to Trump in a minute. Maybe I'll start out, maybe I'll mix up these segments and go back and actually um, put some other segments earlier so I even it out. So it's like one anti-Trump story, one pro-Trump story, whatever. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about how the left-leaning news media is covering this various statistics with regard to the economy since Trump has encountered COVID-19. Not, not since he's encountered COVID-19 himself personally, but uh, since COVID-19 broke out in the U.S. And I guess technically it really started breaking out in March. So here's what I want to say about that. I just saw a chart today that said job growth by president, and it showed a Trump at minus uh, 4 million. Now, remember... He had uh, the lowest unemployment under his presidency, which, by the way, I don't blame the, the president on unemployment issues or employment issues in general. Um, the, the, the president only has so much power. And let's be honest, uh, the economic policies that Trump passed were not just his design. It was primarily just the Republican Party who got those passed. And I believe they were helpful for the economy. I believe they helped. And frankly, at this point, I believe anyone who... I mean, and I'm not just talking about the, the uh, stock market. A lot of people will say on the left, yeah, it was good for the stock market. No, it was good for everybody. When you have the lowest unemployment in history um, in the last 70 years and the lowest unemployment in history for African-Americans and, and uh, Hispanics and Asian-Americans and so on, you have um, an, a great economy. Now, they could argue, well, yeah, but uh, people were taking on multiple jobs or people didn't have the right kind of jobs and that sort of thing. And there's room for some debate there. I agree with that. I agree with that. I, I certainly don't, I'm not one of those who believes that the, the economy was the best it's ever been across all metrics. I don't believe that for a minute. But in many important metrics, it was a great economy before COVID-19 hit. But what I'm finding, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing more of these charts and more of these arguments where people are holding Trump accountable for what happened to uh, the economy after COVID-19 hit. And I don't believe that's fair. Now they will say, yeah, but Trump reacted the wrong way to COVID-19. Okay, you can make that argument, but that's a separate argument. That's a completely separate argument than just saying Trump's had uh, horrible employment numbers because of COVID-19. You cannot count COVID-19 when you're looking at the Trump presidency versus previous presidencies. You just can't. 
What happened with COVID-19 was unexpected. It wasn't Trump's fault. It wasn't anyone's fault, except for maybe the Communist Party of China for not being more honest and upfront and for not getting a hold of the, the outbreak when they had the chance early on. And also they lied completely about their numbers. But um, also it's possible a lot of scientists, and I'm not saying this, by the way, I don't care, but a, a lot of actual scientists are saying that this does look like the virus was manipulated in a lab um, and probably likely escaped from the lab, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. Some people call that a conspiracy theory. It's a BS. It's not a conspiracy theory. There are legit, famous, well-known leaders in science who actually say that. It is not just a conspiracy theory. I'm going to keep my mouth shut on it because I don't know a lot about it, but I have listened to interviews with well-known scientists and you look them up and they are professors, they are researchers, they're big names. And they say this has the the structure of looking like it was manipulated in a lab. Okay. So if you're going to blame this on anyone, you blame it on China. But that's a different question entirely than just, you know, the people are just, they're just showing a chart that says, you know, Obama had um, net positive job growth and Trump has had net negative job growth. Well, not really. Not If you count COVID-19 and a bunch of people losing their jobs, he would otherwise be at uh, positive job growth. In fact, they had him at minus 4 million. Yeah, that's because like 20, 25 million people lost their jobs after COVID-19. So he would actually have higher job numbers than like some of the highest people on this list. I'm going to look at the list really quick. Yeah, if you don't count that, if you don't count the 4 million... Um, or the, I'm sorry, the 25 million people who lost their jobs after COVID-19, um, he would actually have, he would be right around Clinton's job growth. And actually what's interesting about Clinton is that he was surrounded by Republicans who run the House and the Senate at the time. And so they were actually in a position where they had to compromise a lot. And the tax, um, the tax code and everything was still the same that it was under Bush Sr., And so in my opinion, when you look at why there was job growth under Clinton, he had some good initiatives like um, reforming the welfare system and stuff like that, which was really pushed on him by the Republicans primarily. Um, And he was sort of forced to go along with it. He compromised, but it was a good decision. And uh, at that time, I think that uh, the country did really well because the the budgets were more balanced and because, because the low taxes were still in effect from Bush Sr. And uh, there was actually a a tax hike with Bush Sr., but Clinton wanted to raise taxes even more, and the Republicans said no. So the tax level stayed the same and so on. And so there was that stability, and that allowed for the economy to grow. You know, the Clintons are actually pretty capitalistic. A lot of the people on the right love to call them, um, you know, communists and closet socialists and they call them closet Marxists and stuff. And maybe, maybe they are, maybe the Clintons really love Marxism in their heart. I don't know, but their policy was pretty corporate and capitalistic. And when you look at Hillary Clinton, she's giving speeches to JP Morgan Chase and other companies and getting paid millions of dollars to do so. And she's telling them, you know, in those secret meetings that she didn't know were audio taped. What did we find on them? What did she say? She said, well, when we're in public, we have a public-facing policy, and when we're in private, we have a private policy. In other words, you guys here, the bankers, you know what we're up to. 
but the people out there, they can't know what we're up to. Yeah, she said that. Go look it up. Google it. So anyway, the Clintons were pretty corporatist. A lot of like Kyle Kalinske and other Democrats, especially socialist Democrats or democratic socialists, um, they, they will point out that the, that the, uh, the Clintons are, were very much corporate Democrats or corporatist Democrats as Kalinske likes to call them. And, um, they were capitalists, you know, by and large. And even Obama was by and large a capitalist, even if he did want more socialism in general, he was still a capitalist. And I don't, you know, I never bought into these ideas that were pushed by the right during his presidency that he was some sort of communist. So anyway, I mean, if you want to talk about communism, even um, even Bernie Sanders isn't really a hardcore Marxist. He he definitely likes his democratic socialism, but he's not some kind of hardline Marxist. And some people might try and argue for that, but when you look at what he said and what he's done in, in his time in office, it's hard to prove it, you know? So anyway, certainly he, he was sympathetic to uh, to the communists, and that's because he was sympathetic to socialism. But that doesn't mean he is a communist. There's a difference. So I'm not surprised at all that job growth, there was a lot of job growth under Clinton. Now, part of that was because he had eight years in office, so he had he had some time to to build that up. But Bush didn't see a lot of job growth um, for various reasons. After 9-11, the war on terror, there was a... You would, you would think that in some ways there would have been job growth, but no, they were still shipping jobs overseas to China. And then Obama had some job growth, uh, which was good because, again, what happened under Bush Jr. was the financial collapse of 2008. So by the time he left office, there was already a massive financial collapse and a lot of people were out of work. And then that gave way to Obama to add jobs. So, of course, Obama had net jobs just by the impossibility of the contrary. It was almost impossible for him not to have a positive economy after he came into office. It was already going back up. And so he had a net positive 12 million. Well, if you don't count COVID, uh, President Trump had a, probably even more than Clinton. He probably had the highest job growth numbers of any president in modern history since I think they started counting during Truman. So those people who are counting COVID, um, I think, are being disingenuous. Even if you, want to, if you want to make the argument that he's to blame for every evil that's happened since COVID, that somehow he's to blame for COVID, I think that that argument can't be made, but it's an argument that's separate from this issue. Um, there's just no way that uh, Trump is alone to blame for everything that happened after he tried to shut down travel from China and then Europe and the Democrats opposed him on both of those decisions. Um, I just don't think he was the one leading the way as far as shutting down travel. Now, where he failed was in the area of masks and in the area of uh, wanting to or allowing for um, shutdowns. I shouldn't say that. Actually, now that I think about that, it's not true because any local jurisdiction could have done shutdowns. Trump ended up encouraging the whole nation to do it for 15 days. Remember that. Um, but uh, the president's not. the president cannot do that. He can't tell the whole nation to shut down. So you can't blame him for that. So when it comes to shutdowns, that's the state's. That's up to them. And what's interesting is the states that had the most shutdowns also had the most deaths, even by percentage, not just by total gross number, but by percentage. I think where Trump failed was um, probably not encouraging to people to wear masks. And I was early on back in March telling people, 
that shutdowns weren't the answer and that the answer was masks. And when I say answer, I don't mean the magical solution to everything, just that wearing masks is smart because um, this virus appears to be able to you know, travel through the air. Now we know that that's limited. It can, but it's limited. It's typically um, transferred in the typical ways that coronaviruses are transferred. But uh, still, wear a mask, and uh, that would have helped. I think early on that would have helped a lot. Now there's a whole lot of different issues to take into account that I'm not going to get into now. But to blame Trump early on when he was the only one calling for shutdowns while the Democrats and even a lot of Republicans were criticizing him for shutting down travel from China and from Europe. And then Europe was criticizing him too. Everyone was basically criticizing him when he was shutting down travel from uh, China and Europe. And, uh, and now they want to say that he, you know him not acting fast enough is to blame. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty, and in a sense, you can say, well, yeah, back in February, he should have shut down air travel and encouraged all the states to shut down and everything. And of course, had he known how bad it would have gotten, you know, I think he would have done that. Um, but that's, you know, that's the kind of argument that says like, you know, it doesn't do a cost benefit analysis. It's the kind of argument that says, well, we won't have any more crime if we just locked up everyone in padded rooms. If we put everyone in a padded room, there'll be no more crime. Yeah, but what's the cost? The cost to, uh, cost to our freedoms? Who uh, Does everyone want to be locked up in a padded room? Sure, we'll be living the safest lives you could possibly imagine. But what's the cost? And so you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and you have to ask yourself, at, at some point, people have to be allowed to be free. At some point, you have to be able to live life. And the risk associated with that might be that people die. Okay, but if you want to make it impossible for just one person to die, then you have to lock up everyone in their own room. And they have to breathe their own air. And fine, Four, 15 days later, the virus will have ceased to exist. But everyone will have to be locked up in, an, in their own room for 15 days. Well, that's not even possible. That's not even logistically possible. So you have to do a cost-benefit analysis no matter what you do. And the fact is, no matter what happens, some people are going to die. And the fact is, we have to be willing to accept that for the trade-off, of what we can't do, what we simply cannot do. Even if you told everyone, stay at home in your house with your family for 15 days, and everyone in the United States did that, the virus would not end. The virus wouldn't end. Because if you have a family of 10, one person can transfer that virus to another person, and then another person could transfer that virus to another person, and then another person could transfer. It would take 10 weeks or 20 weeks, theoretically, for the virus to transfer from one person to another in a family of 10. So logistically speaking, it's impossible to just tell everyone to stay at home with their family or stay at home in your own room. Don't, don't interact with anybody else. It would take weeks and weeks. It would take months in that condition for the virus to disappear and for us to have zero deaths after that. But then you've destroyed the economy completely. You've literally just destroyed everything. People wouldn't be able to eat. They wouldn't have homes. They wouldn't have, there would, there would be nothing left. If you just shut down the economy for many, several, 10, 20 weeks until we were absolutely sure no one would die. And even during that time, people would still die. 
do you, you know, this is what people don't understand. You just have to think this out logically. Logistically, it's impossible to shut down everything, to put everyone in their own room and wait for the virus to die. We don't have enough rooms for that. We just don't. We don't have enough rooms. Think about how many families live together where people share rooms. You simply cannot lock everyone up in their own room for two weeks. So anyways, you get the point. It's not possible. There has to be a cost-benefit analysis and people are going to die. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but it's a fact. There are going to be people who will pass away and the question is a cost-benefit analysis question. And I'm not saying I know the answer to that and I'm not saying Trump is right either. I'm not defending uh, Trump across the board. I'm saying that some of what he did was right, shutting down travel. If, of course, we know hindsight, it was probably a little bit too late. It was too late. I mean, I would say it was too late. But there's no way he would have gotten away with that beforehand. No one, they were criticizing him when he did it, when he did it. Imagine if he had done it earlier. They would not have let him get away with that. So you simply cannot blame Trump for the 200,000 people who have died, having died. It just it does not make logical sense. So then to blame the downturn in the economy on him is equally as illogical. It's equally as illogical. The problem was COVID-19. The problem was not Trump. It wasn't that Trump passed some laws that made it, that destroyed the economy. It wasn't that he raised taxes and hurt businesses. No, COVID-19 and mostly Democrat, actually entirely Democrat-led states and cities shut down their economies and put uh, upwards of 60% of small businesses out of business. So yeah, it's... There's, a, there's some blame to go around, but it's not, ultimately, most of it's not Trump's blame. It's, the blame can easily be put on Democrat mayors and governors and the decisions they made to shut down their states and destroy the economy. And so when you look at the jobs numbers, there's no way you can blame Trump and uh, just you know pretend like COVID-19 never happened and pretend like Democrats and uh, Democrat mayors and governors didn't shut down their states. I mean, it's really that simple. You have to be blind not to uh, take that into account. <sighs> All right, let me move on to something from the Republican side, something I want to critique here. And um, I, I'm not sure if I forgot, I don't think I'm going to release my previous shows. I made four previous shows while I was um, sort of prepping to release this podcast publicly. And one of the things I talked about in one of those shows was this. This was when Jill Biden recently um, grabbed uh, Joe from kind of the back, the arm, and pulled him back from the crowd of people he was talking to and said, okay, let's keep a social distance or let's distance a little bit. And um, the way that the right-leaning media took this was hilarious. So let me play a clip for you. Report that has been lax in the last few weeks. Upon landing, Jill Biden had to redirect the candidate, reminding him as he spoke about COVID science to social distance from reporters, Laura. Note the aggressive caretaker tactic here. Listen to the science. Okay, what happens? You can't see the video, but what happens is he's talking to people. He's got masks on. They have masks on. It's the press. And he's talking about the science. And so Jill comes up behind him and says, okay, let's distance a little bit, something like that. And he says, oh, sorry. And that's all it was. It was the most innocuous little thing where 
his wife reminds him, oh, don't forget to back up a little bit. And he says, oh, sorry, sorry, honey. You know, it's, it's, a, it's actually, I think, a sweet little moment between him and his wife. But this was reported on some websites as the ultimate emasculation of, of Biden, which that's when I start going, okay, whoever's running this website is probably uh, like some, a chauvinist, like definitely not a feminist by any stretch, not even a classical equity feminist or anything. Um, and, uh, and so it's funny that, that they call it the emasculation of Joe Biden, his wife following him around and telling him what to do. And they called her his handler. You know, he had to be saved, rescued, told what to do from his handler. It was hilarious to me the way this was reported by the right-leaning media. Fucking ridiculous. Again, to me, it seemed like a sweet moment. If you've ever been in a long-term relationship with someone or you've had a girlfriend or boyfriend or you've, been, uh, you've had a close friend who's been around you, any of those instances where you're close with someone and they care about you and they say, oh, don't forget to back off from this or don't forget to do that or you know, maybe you've had one too many or I don't know, I, oh, I needed to remind you to do this, whatever it is, and you go, oh, yeah, that's right, sorry, thank you. You know, just this, you know, it was a nice little moment there was nothing newsworthy about this whatsoever. There was no reason to turn this into a news story, but it was, uh, you know, it was at the top of the news on some websites for a while, and they even talked about it on the Laura Ingram show. And uh, it's just ridiculous to me. This is not news. So I posted about this on the uh, Zero Politics Twitter account. It's just not news. And what it does is it makes Republicans look bad and they don't even realize this. It makes them look like when they say that she's his handler and that she and that it's an emasculation of, of Joe Biden, they, they come across like male chauvinists. They come across like um, some kind of, uh, you know, women should know their place. And anytime a woman's telling a guy what to do, he's just being emasculated. He's no longer a man. You know, this kind of mentality is just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So as far as I'm concerned... They ought to be ashamed of themselves for covering it that way. And uh, I salute any of the people on the right who didn't cover it that way and didn't talk about it because they didn't find it newsworthy, and I applaud them for that. But notice again how the guy who's uh, talking to Laura Ingram here says, the aggressive caretaker attitude that she took. An aggressive caretaker attitude. No, she, she was as sweet as honey. She just came up behind Joe and was like politely reminding him to, to back up. Aggressive caretaker attitude. All right. All right. You're taking it way too far. Shut up. Sit down. Focus on real journalism and reporting real news, please. All right. It's time to move on to at least one last story here. I want to go after the right a little bit. Okay. This is one of my big critiques of the Republicans and the right in the United States. And I'm going to let Ben Shapiro uh, exemplify it for me because he's actually one of the best at perpetuating this mythology that all of the media, the media in general, are pro-left and only attack the right. And I'm going to explain to you why I don't like this when he's done talking. Let's listen to what he has to say. The other night in debate with McSally on whether he's in favor of the filibuster. Wouldn't that be something you'd want to know if you're voting for a senator, whether they actually wish to end minority rights completely in the Senate? Wouldn't that be something that you would want to know? Apparently, he doesn't think he has to answer. And the media are not going to press the Democrats on this stuff. So understand that if Trump loses, radical things are going to happen. It's going to be a victory for a bunch of people who you probably don't want to see win. 
It's going to be a, a victory for the radicals in the Democratic Party. It is going to be a victory for a media that has turned all of its guns on Trump. Now, as I've said, Trump has, has cast himself many self-inflicted wounds, but the media have been so overwhelmingly anti-Trump. I mean, it, it is far more than it was with Bush. It was bad with Bush. It is way worse with Trump. They hate Trump with every fiber of their being. Over 90% of all media coverage of Trump since his inauguration has been negative. It's a victory for a media that is driving the American political narrative. It's a victory for folks inside the bureaucracy of the government who think that they ought to control the, the power of American government, not the legislature, not the states. It all ought to be done at the federal level. Okay, I'm going to cut him off right there. First, let me say he made a few good points there. One is it's a self-inflicted wound. Trump brought this on himself. Trump likes to point to the cameras at him. He likes himself to be the center of attention. Well, what happens? Inevitably, when you do that, the media is focused on you because he loves the limelight so much that he's going to get a lot of negative press. And then he gets, you know, angry when they give him negative press, you know. But it is what it is. He wants everyone to pay attention to him. He's really bad at putting the focus on other people, which he should do sometimes. In fact, some would argue you, by and large, want to focus the media on everyone else besides yourself. But it's the opposite with Trump. So he makes that point well. He does make the point that 90% of all uh, stories from the mainstream media or left-leaning, I would say left-leaning media, are 90% are anti-Trump. But he keeps saying, and this is my big critique, he keeps saying the media, the media in general, the media in general, and this is the way people on the right talk. They perpetuate this myth that nobody in the media is pro-right. It's almost like Fox News doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It's almost like One American News Network doesn't exist. And some of the shows on uh, Russia Today, U.S., are more libertarian, more right-leaning. And, and, and you have all these YouTube channels and so on who are, a lot more people are watching YouTube channels now than are watching mainstream news, and a lot of them lean right. Now, in the newspaper world, most newspapers are still, um, they've moved left, but you do still have some that are more in the, in the Republican side of the aisle. Well, I think it's an over-exaggeration. Well, not only is, is it an over-exaggeration, it's, it's just a lie. But the right really thrives off of this myth that all of the news media is left-leaning. And so much so that many will say that, um, and it's true, that technically Fox News is run by Democrats. And it's true that on a lot of their shows, they go out of their way to cover up for left-leaning Democrat um, power brokers like George Soros, who gives tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to politics and anyone, I don't care if they're on the left or the right, I'm skeptical if they're giving tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to politicians or, you know, elections and so on. And, and um, I'm, I'm skeptical, not in the sense that I believe we should control what everyone does with their money, but because I just know, okay, watch them closely because they're spending a lot of money on stuff. And for George Soros, it was in the last uh, couple years paying for a lot of the um, district attorneys around the country to get them elected. He put a lot of money into their campaigns. And we're seeing the fruit of that because these are strong left-leaning um, district attorneys who maybe he, I don't know, I don't know what he hopes to get out of it, but let me tell you what's happening. These are the district attorneys now 
who are going after right-leaning individuals. They are going after police to um, impose heavy penalties on them or um, arresting them and charging them in cases where it's pretty clear that the police were justified in, in shooting African-American individuals. We're just seeing this starting to happen now with some of these cases that have been brought up. And I've paid really close attention to all those cases, and really only a couple of them weren't justified. Okay? Really. So every time a, a black person dies at the hands of police, which, by the way, white people die at the hands of police all the time too, unarmed white people, I shouldn't say all the time. It's literally like 10 to 20 per year. <laughs> Out of the millions of interactions people have with police, about 10 to 20 per year where you have unarmed white and black individuals um, being killed by police. It doesn't happen very often. If you've been watching, um, it's happened uh, a few times, two, three times over the last six months. You know, yet, well, since George Floyd, Breonna Taylor happened around that same period. And then you had one recently just the other day, but we the, the evidence still isn't out on that. So that's three in the last six months. There was another, um, there was another, there was the guy outside of the Wendy's. I can't remember his name, but... I, he was just, it was justified. The guy turned around and shot his taser at the police. Yes, he was running away, but he was running away and then he turned around and shot the taser at the police. I would say that was justified. I would say that the police officer was, felt that he had to defend himself at that point from being tased. And then once he's tased, that guy could have grabbed his gun and shot him or something like that. So... Now, I say that as being someone who actually, um, being someone who's libertarian, is rather opposed to um, police overreach of power, police brutality. In fact, I used to have a, a website where I used to write about it on a regular basis a long time ago. So I'm, I'm very much opposed to um, police brutality. Um, and th what I see is, is a lot of um, implicit bias. And I also see a lot of... Um, um, I can't think of the term all of a sudden, uh, racial profiling that does happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, most of the time when a black individual is shot by cops, um, it's usually a black officer. So it's hard to argue that it's racism, but it's easy to argue that it's implicit bias perhaps. And, um, but in most cases it's justified. And that's my argument going back to that. Wow. Did I get off topic in most cases, police shooting an unarmed black or white person or Hispanic person, it's usually justified. And in some rare cases, it's not. Whether it's a shooting or in George Floyd's case, they, they uh, you know, basically stood on his neck and put his knee on his neck until he passed out. But both coroners who studied that both came away and agreed that it wasn't just from the knee on the neck. He also had a lethal dose, a lethal dose of uh, fentanyl in his system that he swallowed just before arrest to hide it. So he was high as a kite. And if you know anything about fentanyl, you know that, that it will suffocate you to death. It basically causes your breathing to restrict and you, and you die that way. And on top of that, you had, um, he was just coming down from a methamphetamine um, high. And then on top of that, um, he had a cardiovascular disease that uh, the coroners who... Um, uh, the pathologists or whoever it was who did the, um, did the report, they both agreed that there was a group of military who did it. And then, um, some private, um, pathologists who did it. And, uh, they came away and agreed that it looked like he, 
uh, died from four different, four different things, including the drugs, the cardiovascular disease, and the knee on the neck. So in that case, it was like, it was, it was a horrible accident, a horrible incident. It should have never happened. I, the police shouldn't have been on his, sitting on his neck. The, the, the cop should have, as soon as he said he couldn't breathe, now he should have told him, I took fentanyl. Listen, I swallowed a little baggie of fentanyl. I can't breathe. They would have gotten him an ambulance. They should have gotten him an ambulance anyways, you know, but they didn't. Instead, they just decided to kneel on his neck for nine minutes and uh, he died. Obviously, that was the trigger that really helped solidify the deal. So <laughs> it's a horrible, horrible incident. Should have never happened. But that kind of thing isn't common. It's really actually quite rare. There are millions of interactions with the police every year. And out of those millions, only between 10 and 20 um, in each race category turn into um, a case where an individual dies who was not armed and trying to kill officers in some way. And I looked at all the data that was released by the Washington Post on that, and that's what I found as well. Because I wasn't, I didn't want to believe the people I was listening to when they said it was between 10 and 20, depending on how you define certain terms. Um, like, for example, if, um, if someone jumps in their car and tries to run over a cop, is that considered a deadly weapon? That's debatable. Some people in their statistics, they don't include those. Um, and sometimes they include them. So it kind of depends. And for me, that's why I say between 10 and 20. Between 10 and 20, depending on how, how do you define certain scenarios, you could say an unarmed person was killed by the cops in each race category. So anyway, I don't even remember what I was talking about before. I know I was talking about Ben Shapiro and what he was saying about um, the, the, the media just generalizing all of the media as left-leaning. And he was right to say that 90% of... Um, uh, coverage of Trump is negative. But a lot of that is justified too because Trump says a lot of stupid things. And I, you know, I mean, come on, if you're on the right and you can't admit that Trump's Twitter account alone is enough to get him more negative coverage than, say, Bush or Reagan or something like that, then you're not being honest. You know, his Twitter account alone is enough to get news written about him in a negative light. Now, you would, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for another day, but. Let me finish this idea about generalizing. He really does himself a disservice by not considering Fox News to be on the right. They lean right, definitely, and some shows lean way right. Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. Now, those are opinion shows, granted, and the, you know, the same as MSNBC and CNN. They have their opinion shows that lean left. And, but even the main news um, shows still lean a little bit right. But then you have a couple that definitely lean left and they won't talk about certain things, bringing up George Soros again. The other day they had a, they had a Newt Gingrich on and he brought up George Soros and these district attorneys. And as soon as he started talking about it, the show hosts were like, oh, we're not going to talk about that. They literally said, you don't need to bring Soros into this. Really? Because we're talking about all these people being bailed out, being let go by these district attorneys who are rioting all over the country and then they're turning right back around and, and rioting again and then getting arrested again. And it's all these dist district attorneys in left-leaning cities who were funded in terms of their campaigns by Soros. So what's, why shouldn't we bring up George Soros? He's a mega-millionaire, multi-millionaire, worth a ton of money, and he's giving it a lot of it for left-leaning political causes. 
So we can at least talk about him as being a power broker on the left. We could talk the same way about the Koch brothers. Well, only one of them is alive now, but the Koch, I don't remember which one it was who's still alive, but uh, whoever the Koch brother is who's still alive, we can still talk about him as being a power broker on the right, right? The left is certain critical of it. They're, they're always bringing up the Koch brothers. For decades, they've been talking about the Koch brothers. But you mentioned George Soros, and like their head explodes. They go crazy, right? No, you should be able to be critical about these power brokers who have a ton of money on the left and the right, and you have to wonder why, for what reason are they investing so much? And do they, is it because, I mean, that they may be, Maybe, possibly, like with George Soros, maybe he's giving a lot of money to people who he knows will allow certain things to happen so that maybe he can make money or that he believes he can transform the country in some way. He's using his money to change things, for sure. I think it's for the worse, personally. I don't see any evidence that it's being very helpful. Even though... I may agree with some of the things that these district attorneys uh, are proponents of. It's quite possible. I'm definitely um, more of a proponent of kind of the, the left's ideas of rehabilitation and of imprisonment, and I'm kind of against the strict, um, typical right-leaning private prison, lock them up for good type mentality, this law and order mentality. I tend to not be a, a fan of that. But what I'm seeing from these district attorneys is people who are committing crimes like burning buildings down and injuring people and doing, they're doing serious things. And then they're being let go out of prison the next day, not charged. Or if they're charged, um, their bail is paid and they're let go and they're landing right back in prison for rioting next week. It's really not good. Um, and somehow that got me onto talking about, uh, some other issue that I can't even remember. This is really not good. This is why I need to script this show because otherwise I'll just go on and on and on and talk about uh, um, just anything my mind wanders to. But uh, yeah, I was talking about, I got off on a tangent earlier when I was talking about Soros and Fox News. Um, but uh, the media definitely does not lean right. Uh, but it, it, there are some right-leaning. One American News and Fox News. One American News is especially right-leaning. You also have Breitbart. You have Daily Wire, which is uh, Shapiro. You have big right-leaning news media outlets. What really kills me is when people on Fox News talk about the media like this. This happens a lot. Greg Gutfeld constantly just using the word news media and bashing the news media. And I'm like, dude, you're part of the news media. You're part of it. He might say, no, I'm just a comedian who shows up on Fox to talk about the news and analyze it. And I'm, yeah, that's what most, that's what all modern news media is. None of it is actually journalism anymore. It's, it's either activism or it's professional news reading and analysis. That's all it is. That's a completely different thing than journalism. Journalism is investigation. It's investigative reporting, which by the way, I'm going to start doing on this show too. Um, probably next week, total change of subject here. I'm going to start, um, doing calls to very interesting people in the United States. Let's just put it that way. 
I'm going to start calling the offices of people in Congress on the show. I'm going to record it for you. I'm going to start record. I'm going to start recording phone calls um, with some of these district attorneys, some of the sheriffs, uh, some of the uh, law enforcement. I'm going to start calling um, governors' offices and others and news media people, people in the news media. I'm going to start making phone calls. Now, I'm not going to get into doing interviews. That's not the point. The point is, and this is going to be mostly a funny thing, I think. I'm going to call people up, and I'm going to play their quotes for them and stuff, and I'm just going to ask them questions that are slightly interrogative, okay? They're going to be, they're going to be, um, uh, they're going to pu- I'm going to push their buttons on purpose to kind of see what they do a little bit, to be honest, because I'm, inter- I'm interested in how they're going to react. And I think my listeners will get a kick out of it. Now, I'm going to do this uh, more probably on another show in the future. I'm going to do a, I have another idea for a comedy, basically a satirical comedy show that, um, that uh, will be politically, it'll be about politics, but it's going to be satirical comedy. I'm going to play a different character, one of my favorite characters, for those who know me. Um, and uh, I'm going to call people a lot on that show, I think, and just do very, I'm going to do prank calls a lot. So it's going to be fun. But uh, yeah, I'm going to start doing that on this show, but it's going to be a little bit more serious, but I'm definitely going to be pushing people's buttons, asking difficult questions, playing back their own quotes to them and, you know, like their own appearances on TV and stuff like that and ask them what they think about that or if they have any comment. And I'm also going to be coming up with interesting questions that most of the rest of the news media don't ask. Like I said, there's a lot of people in news media, most of them, they're just professional news readers and analysts. They're not investigative journalists. The investigative journalists are behind the scenes. And oftentimes, some of these people on on the news do some investigation, but they can't talk about a lot of what they want to talk about. For example, with the Epstein case, there were investigative journalists um, who had massive scoops on Epstein. They knew what was going on, but CNN did not want them talking about it because Jeffrey Epstein was friends with all their friends, the Clintons and so on. Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Clinton were super tight. Um, Bill Gates, super tight with Epstein. And they're going to, Bill Gates will act like he wasn't, but he was. You know, he flew with him. He talked with him. He was part of the same organizations. They both were in the um, transhumanist movement and went to all the transhumanist uh, um, I, you know, get-togethers and conferences and stuff like that. They were they were somewhat tight, you know. Um, and there's a lot of other people well known in in the industry and in uh, when I say industry, I'm thinking of Hollywood, but not just Hollywood, but also. Um, and I'm not even getting into the conspiracy stuff, the the QAnon and stuff like that, because I'm I'm not into that. I don't support that. But there are a long list of people who Epstein was friends with, who I think CNN was protecting. Um, and of course, now that the flight logs have come out and stuff, we, we know, we know that, um, Bill Clinton traveled on Epstein's jet, like something like 20 something times, you know? So yeah, it's, um, incriminating. So they don't want people talking about it. So these journalists, they keep quiet about it. They can't talk. There's a lot of stuff they can't talk about. And I'd like to see if I can't maybe ruffle some feathers to, to ask some critical questions to, to, dig a little deeper and then make some phone calls and record them and just tell people 
uh, ask people questions. And even if I have to tell them, oh, it's off the record, um, I won't tell them I'm recording, but of course I'm going to record because I don't care. Um, and uh, because I don't need journalistic ethics, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a journalist. <laughs> I'm an actor. Um, so anyway, my my goal there with calling people is going to be seeing if I can't push some buttons. And uh, I could I could press a little deeper, but the point isn't really to do interviews. It's it's mostly to see if I can get some humorous reactions out of people. But anyway, I want to get back to, um, I need to finish up this topic with Shapiro and people on the right referring to the media um, in general as all being on the left. Um, I don't think it helps their case that much. And everyone knows they're kind of lying. You know, I mean, everyone on the right has to know. I mean, they're sitting there watching Fox News. They're sitting there watching the Daily Wire. They're sitting there watching um, uh, Breitbart or... They're watching uh, One American News, you know, and they're all referring to the media. The media hates Trump. The media is Democrats. The media is, you know, full of socialists. Well, they're sitting there watching the media. You know, you're all the news media. So it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to say that. So stop saying it because it's ridiculous. Okay, Ben? <sighs> okay, I kind of made it sound like I was going to do one more, but I'm going to do more stories. I can't help it. I got more to say. I, I just have to, uh, I have to comment on this. Why was Trump Jr. running ads or posting on Facebook saying things like, we need you to join Army for Trump's election security operation. Enlist now. DefendYourBallot.com I mean, let's, can we just not pussyfoot around? Can we be honest about this? Why are you using military language? Why use military language encouraging people to go out to defend the election, defend the ballot box, be involved in election security as part of an army for Trump, enlisting to join? You're using all military language to talk about something that we should not in any way, shape, or form be militarizing. I would encourage the Trump, the Trumpers out there, the people who love themselves some Trump, and I got plenty of friends who love themselves some Trump, and it's okay, I love those people too. I love everyone. But these people, you've got to stop using militaristic language to talk about defending the ballot box. Yes, I totally believe that the left is in a position where they can utilize fraud. And I don't mean that, and, and now there's going to be people on the left listening to me who are like, well, you're saying we're trying to engage in fraud. Okay, well, first of all, yes, it's proven that already there's been a ton of fraud. And they're going to say, no, there hasn't been. A, yes, there has. There's been a bunch of fraud. And I'm not talking about nine military ballots thrown out. I'm talking about thousands tens of thousands of ballots being sent to people to the wrong addresses, wrong names. Do you know how much that can throw a whole district? That can throw a whole state right there. New Jersey could be f***ed already. Open your eyes. Tens of thousands of ballots set to the wrong addresses, the wrong people, dead people, and that kind of stuff. That's, that leaves the door wide open for fraud. Wide open. And I know people who have received ballots for the wrong people at their home, and they could fill those out and forge them if they wanted to. Now, 
I don't know all of New Jersey's laws inside and out. I don't know how they would prevent that. I have no idea. But this is why there's a transition integrity team, the transition integrity project or whatever they're calling it, which is um, a group of people, of Democrats, um, who have joined together to make a plan for if there's um, what they consider to be a problem with the transition. And they've come up with different scenarios. And when you start talking about groups of people trying to manage the transition for, pres- for of the presidency, whether if Trump wins or not, it just starts to sound like it's a open conspiracy in a sense. You know what I mean? Like it's not a secret, that it's just open. That they're talking about, okay, this is what's going to happen if we need to try and force Trump out of office. You know, what happens if this goes to court? What happens if some states don't decide for weeks or months who won the election and it ends up having to go to the court, the Supreme Court or what have you? I mean, it could get really dangerous. There is the possibility for civil conflict and civil unrest. So, and, and this whole COVID thing, I mean, I can understand why some people, everyone is allowed to be scared of COVID if they want to be, okay? I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, criticize people for being worried about their safety. If you're an older person, you don't want to go out, you don't want to wait in line, you want to vote by mail, fine. I get it. Voting by mail, though, opens up a, a whole world of um, new disasters that could happen in states that aren't used to it. You know what I mean? Um, uh, and for the first time, they're sending out ballots to everyone in the state. So it is a very tenuous situation. And the possibility for civil unrest following a, a big debate about who's winning, who won the election, um, is problematic. So the possibility uh, there, and and it could raise the possibility of some people who really want to get Trump out of office, um, trying to turn it into a coup type situation, like a color revolution type situation, where um, they convince the country that Trump lost and maybe he really won, but they push that. Um, that they push that idea so hard that maybe they're able to get enough people within the government to say, all right, let's, let's just pull them out. Um, to me, highly unlikely. I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. I'm not saying that's in the cards. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, it is a remote possibility and something like that could happen. It's happened in dozens of other countries in the last 30 years. So we, we can't say it's impossible. Um, I've never seen this kind of hatred for a president in, in my whole life, not even close. So some people are, are, would be willing to, I think, go a long way to try to get him out of office. Um, but at the very least, all I'm saying is that the, the possibility for um, fraud is, uh, I mean, it's likely that there's going to be some fraud. The only question is how much, you know? So what do you do? What are Republicans to do? Well, going and guarding the ballot boxes, going and acting as ballot <laughs> ballot box uh, polling place security or what have you is probably not worth doing. To be completely honest with you, it's probably not going to change anything. I mean, I've I've uh, seen a lot of voting places before, and I've always they always seem to be um, places where people. Um, are very well-mannered. They're not, you know, I don't see people trying to sneak around and 
You know, I don't see people breaking rules. I see, you know, typically pretty well-ordered. It's not the kind of thing where you really need police or military to be hanging out watching people. I can't think of, you know, uh, very much fraud that's going to happen at the ballot box, at the polling place. You know what I mean? Where I see most of the fraud happening would just be in all these ballots that they sent out to people to the wrong addresses and so on. And people just filling out other people's ballots, people going out ballot harvesting and filling out ballots or paying people. Like in the recent undercover videos that the Veritas Project did, where they did catch people ballot harvesting illegally, um, having uh, this one individual had a car full of ballots and um, they caught on video people going and paying people uh, $200 a pop to, to vote for Elon Omar. Um, and, uh, you know, so that kind of stuff does happen. The fraud does happen. The question is on what scale. And when you do this, when you, when you change kind of overnight to mail-in voting for your whole state and you've never done it before, and those states who have done it, it took them decades to figure out how to do it. You know, it took them a long period of time to figure out how to implement it. Um, and uh, to just try and jump over to that system overnight, I think is problematic, especially when your voting rolls are all a fucking mess. Let's be honest. They are a mess. The Hadra, when New Jersey has... I think I last read it was 100,000 ballots sent to people, the wrong addresses, people with the wrong names, uh, pets, deceased people, that sort of thing. It happens. It happens. People on the left need to stop denying that. The question is, of course, when it does happen, how much fraud actually happens. And my guess would be it's a lot more limited than people think. But see, this is an election. This is one of those elections that's like once in a hundred years where people really feel like this is for the heart and soul of the country on both sides. And I, I don't know if we've had a more contentious election since the early 1900s, maybe even the late 1800s. Certainly um, in Lincoln's day, uh, before the Civil War, we had very contentious elections. But, you know, I think... I can't remember the last one that would have been this contentious. It was probably with Teddy Roosevelt's uh, when he ran the Bull Moose Party, I would think. I don't know. But anyway, so that's, uh, that's all I got to say on that. I think it's a bad idea for Trump and Trump Jr. to be using militaristic language to talk about defending and guarding the polar places, enlist in our army to, you know, defend the ballot box, you know. It's just too much. It's, it's a bad idea. It doesn't sit well. I see Democrats on Twitter tweeting about it, um, making a big deal about it. Facebook is now saying they're going to ban all posts. They're going to delete all posts, censor all posts, and remove calls for people to engage in poll watching where any militarized language is suggested or is used or suggested, where the goal is to intimidate, exert control, or display power over election officials or voters. I mean, I don't know what that means, but I mean, I know what it says, but you know how Facebook is. They could use that. I mean, that sounds pretty limited to me, but they could use that to to take uh, a lot of uh, Facebook posts down if they just say, hey, we're going to defend the ballot box. And then, then they, Facebook says, well, defend. That's a militaristic term, so we got to delete that. You know, Facebook is kind of going overboard right now because the left has been attacking them for not censoring enough and for allowing too much right-wing, far-right, uh, however they want to refer to it, um, discussions and posts and things on Facebook. And of course, 
at the same time, the right is saying that basically Facebook is like an echo chamber for the left in that uh, they never get fact-checked and so on, but the right are always fact-checked and the right uh, is uh, often banned. People who are defending Kyle Rittenhouse were just banned off of Facebook or thrown in Facebook jail just for defending him, just for sharing their opinion that they believed he acted in self-defense, which he did, by the way. doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. If you can't watch all the videos, there's a great video on YouTube called uh, Everything You Need to Know About Kyle Rittenhouse in 11 Minutes or something like that. And it shows everything from that day about Kyle Rittenhouse and a little bit about his past too, but everything you need to know from that day, all on video, all uh, footage, camera shots. And when you put it all together, you go, yeah, he was acting in self-defense. In fact, his first attacker was attacking Kyle. He was attacking the wrong person. There was another guy in a green shirt who Kyle's attacker almost got in a fight with earlier that day. And that guy who, by the way, is like a convicted rapist um, and has a violent past. And he was yelling at, I won't repeat what he said because it was vile and disgusting and racist. Um, he was yelling at that guy. And when I say racist, ironically, the guy was white, but he was using um, the N-word towards, towards this white guy. Um, so he, he's yelling at him. Well, he, that guy was wearing a green shirt and was about, you know, looked a little bit like Kyle Rittenhouse. And um, so later on, when Kyle went to put out a fire that they started in a, in a dumpster, he was just putting out a fire in uh, the trash can in the dumpster that they were, they were trying to light this dumpster on fire and push it into a gas station to blow up the entire gas station in the whole area. And uh, Kyle Rittenhouse had a fire extinguisher, so he put out the fire. He was just being safe. And so this guy got angry and uh, likely mistook him for the person he almost got in a fight with earlier and ran after him, lunging toward him. And uh, eyewitnesses said that he was clearly trying to assault Kyle, and that's when Kyle shot him. Um, and, and after that, then he was chased, and then he had to defend himself again. Everything that happened that Kyle did was in self-defense. But see, you can't say that on Facebook. I don't know, maybe you can now, but you couldn't at the time. Lots of people were getting put in Facebook jail for just speaking their mind and saying that Kyle acted in self-defense, which is really problematic. Facebook has become a publisher now. But I've gotten way off topic. Going back to Facebook, they're going to start um, censoring any, any um, calls for people to enlist in Trump's army to go watch the polls. So I highly suggest that Republicans stop talking that way. It is militaristic language, and it does, um, you know, stoke the fire of potential violence. And it's just not cool. It's not a good idea. I know people on the right really like their militaristic language. They like the military. They tend to be pro-military. Oddly enough, the, the left has become very pro-military now in the last 20 years, too. I guess, I don't know why. They used to be the ones who were more like, hey, let's back off, which is how I am, too. I think spending on military is out of control. But um, yeah, come on, chill out. Stop using militaristic language. Don't give the, the left a reason to demonize you more than they already have, you know? I mean, be smart, be smart. You know, I look forward to a day when 
people who are a lot more what I consider sane and better politicians who are back in control of the Republican Party. As much as I like how Trump is uh, kind of shooken things up, not a big Trump fan, but, you know, it is nice and it was fun to see how he really shook things up. I thought it was going to be a lot worse than it was, to be honest with you. When he first became president, I thought he was going to destroy everything. But, uh, you know, so I'm glad that hasn't happened, but he really kind of shook things up. And I think like, okay, now we need someone like a Pence to be in control or uh, I would say Biden, but Biden's way too old, you know, and that Kamala Harris is a little bit too, um, too, um, far left or too, um, ideological for me, you know, some like someone, um, like, uh, oh, what's her name? Um, on uh, the Democrats, uh, Oh, uh, from Hawaii. Why can't I remember her name? She would have been great, man. She would have been a great candidate. So sane and level-headed. Tulsi Gabbard. How could I forget her name? Tulsi Gabbard would have been, and she probably could have beat Trump. I don't know. We'll see. But anyways, um, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, there's so much more I could talk about. There was something else I'm going to talk about too. So give me another segment here. <sighs> All right, what you hear in the background right now, you hear those people talking. That is the live coverage of the debate. What's interesting is I don't think the debate starts for like another five hours, four and a half hours. But they turned on the live stream already. I see everyone there with their masks on. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I'm in Europe right now, so <laughs> what do I know what time? I mean, I think I got the time zones right, but... Oh, that's because I'm, I know what's going on. I'm looking at the wrong time frame. Yeah, it's, it's about ready to start. All right, cool. I'm going to watch this debate, but I don't need you guys to listen to the debate. So I'll turn down that audio. All right. I want to talk about one last thing before I get ready for this debate. And that is, there's so much more I could talk about so much more, but I have to stop just for a moment because my battery is about to die on my laptop. Okay, there's so much more I could talk about, but I'm going to leave it for tomorrow. Someone posted this on Facebook. It said it's the ultimate gaslighting that the country is being asked to pray for their abuser, talking about praying for Trump and wishing him the best, and being ashamed for not feeling sorry for him. And I wrote, you know, I wonder if a lot of these Democrat politicians really believe most of the things they say about Trump, because as I played earlier, I mean, many people, they call Trump Hitler, they call him Mao, Stalin, uh, Russian czar, they call him Kim Jong-il, they compare him to um, Mussolini. And yet when he gets sick, you know, a lot of them are like, you know, we wish him the best, we're, we pray for him, we're going we're gonna to pull some of our negative ads in light of this. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, do, does Biden or Kamala Harris or Certain other politicians, do they really believe these horrible, nasty things they say about Trump? Or, I mean, because if they did, you would think they might be like, well, we'll see what happens. Or maybe even, hey, maybe nature or God has his own way of taking care of the trash, so to speak, or something like that. You know, I mean, honestly, um, if I really felt that uh, Trump was dead set on destroying um, democracy in America, which is like the talking point, the general talking point of the Democrat Party today is that he's um, intentionally 
interested in destroying democracy. He, he wants to destroy the country. He wants to destroy our democracy. Well, if you really believe that, then why would you pray for his health and wish him the best? You would really look forward to him passing. You would hope that anything could, that his health would take him out of um, office. No, So it makes me wonder, are these politicians really honest at all? And I don't think they are. Because this, this is a perfect example. They're trapped, right? They have to say the right thing. They have to pretend like they care when they really think that he's evil. He's like one of the worst people who's ever lived. And they constantly compare him to the worst people who have ever lived. Which one of those things, you know, is true? And I just, I just think they ought to stand by their guns. They ought to. Uh, I'm just realizing that I'm still hearing some of that audio. Um, I think they really need to uh, take a stand and say, if he really is Hitler, he should die. Hopefully COVID-19 would take him out, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So sorry. Just be honest. You know, if you're going to be a politician, just be honest all the time. And I got to be honest myself. I'm seeing a lot more honesty on the right right now. And again, I don't care either way. It's just when I look at, when I listen to the politicians, I'm seeing more honesty on the left than I am on the right. Because the right, I mean, I'm seeing more honesty on the right than I am on the left because the left has let their rhetoric kind of get out of control. You guys need to pull back a little bit, you know, because when you let your rhetoric get out of control, things, bad things start to happen. And one example of that is you start to look like you're not consistent because you either think he's Hitler and should hope that he dies, because who wouldn't have wished that Hitler died before he killed 6 million Jews and 10 millions of people, you know? So if he really wants to destroy the U.S. Uh, democracy, if he really wants to become a dictator, then we should hope that he dies before that happens. And if we really think that he's never going to leave office, we should hope that he dies before that happens. And not be afraid to say that you know, especially for political purposes. So when you, when you start to uh, let your rhetoric get out of control, you, you can start to look inconsistent. But you can also start to dehumanize people. This is another problem with letting your rhetoric get out of control. You start to dehumanize other people. This happens on the left and the right. Again, with the left, it's usually calling the right, you know, racists and, um, uh, gosh, what else? homophobic and anti and then basically dehumanizing them and say anyone who anyone who believes these things and of course most of the people on the right don't believe those things but once it's projected out there that the right is just racist and then we say racists don't have a right to exist in society or if they do they have to shut up and they can't talk there's no room for them to say anything that and at that point you start taking away their fundamental human rights for things that they don't even actually believe. And it's bad enough to take away someone's human rights, even when they do believe disgusting things. I don't care. I'm still not going to take away their freedom of speech. But it's even worse when you start taking away their human rights for things they don't even believe. So when you allow your rhetoric to get out of control and you're intellectually dishonest, you can dehumanize people. It happens on the right, too. When they start calling people on the left communists, and in their view, communists are, you know, so evil and they want to take over the United States and they do have a history of killing lots of people, okay? 
You know, let's not just dance around that. Communists are pretty violent historically, okay? So then they, they um, now on the right, they will usually reserve this for self-defense. On the left, they're starting to get offensive about their violence and about their dehumanization. On the right, um, they sort of dehumanize the left too, but they're not talking about going out and killing commies, um, you know, offensively. You know, look, they're a communist right now, um, protesting and rioting in the streets, burning down buildings, killing people, and there's nobody on the, nobody on the right is doing anything about that really. Nobody, even with the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, that wasn't about him going out to like hurt commies. That was him going out to defend some businesses, put out fires, and rescue protesters who needed medical attention. That's primarily why he was there. He was the medic on his team, and he was helping protesters there. He was um, patching people up when they got hurt. So he was there actually helping people. And a lot of people tried to position it as they were there to, um, you know, to fight with BLM protesters. That's actually not what happened. In fact, earlier in the day, in the video, they said, we support BLM. Uh, Ryan's whole squad there, you know, he was like, or not him, but the, one of the leaders of the group said, we support BLM as long as you're hurting. And he even said, as long as you're damaging only government property, we're fine with that because they were all libertarians. They were wearing libertarian shirts and stuff. They're like, if you want to damage the government property, that's cool. But, you know, don't damage private property. And uh, they were talking to the BLM protesters. Interesting group of people. They weren't racist. They weren't there to try and start uh, fights with uh, the BLM protesters and the black bloc anarchists and all the rest. So anyway, uh, the, on the right, they tend to talk about killing commies when it comes to like some civil war, when it comes to, you know, communists actually trying to take over the country. Um, but certainly they're not interested in doing much right now because there's commies in the streets and they're not doing anything. Now it's the commies in the streets who are acting, acting offensive. They're acting aggressive. They're carrying out offensive violence against um, individuals, against businesses, against the government in general. So when I look at both sides right now, I have to just be honest and say there's some people on the left who are going overboard in their rhetoric. They're overboard in their intentions uh, and in their violence. And I'm not seeing that same stuff from the right. Can it happen from the right? Absolutely. You know, that possibility exists. But um, I'm just not seeing it. It's not really happening. It's happening. You know, there's there's a little bit of it here and there where you have individuals. Um, so you'll have in, uh, white supremacist types attacking African Americans, especially like in certain parts of the country, and uh, that's disgusting and horrible. And it does happen. It's just it's these small, isolated events. Whereas right now, for the last hundred thirty days, you've had these all out. Um, riots and stuff happening where now 33 people have died a billion dollars more than a billion dollars in damage almost a thousand officers by now probably a thousand officers since the i heard the number 800 something you know weeks ago uh have been injured so anyways i gotta i gotta stop it there this debate's ready to start and uh i'm probably gonna want to comment on a lot of the things in this debate not on this episode though i'm gonna get this episode wrapped up i'm gonna get it uh encoded and uploaded so that it gets out now uh today's episode is coming out in the u.s pretty late it's gonna be like 10 at 10 o'clock at night um tomorrow i'm hoping to get the episode out midday so we'll see. And hopefully an episode every day. I'm sticking to it. 
um, this really, I need to do this because people have been asking me for years to start a politics podcast. So I'm on it now. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Take care of yourselves. Be cool. Be chill. Don't hurt anybody. Don't act aggressively. Don't be an ass. And I'll catch you tomorrow.